A platform as a service, or a PaaS, is the concept of a complete development and deployment environment in the cloud. One of the best examples is Heroku, which was created in 2007 and later acquired by Salesforce. Although these services are great for helping startups get off the ground quickly, they can ultimately become a form of technical debt because of the issues with cost, control, scale, and reliability. Today, we're speaking with Brandon Bayer. Brandon is a licensed aircraft pilot, and he's also the CEO of Flight Control, a platform as a service company that he co-founded. Flight Control is built on top of AWS and allows users to deploy it on their own AWS infrastructure. In this episode, Brandon talks about how his team engineered Flight Control and how it was designed for small and large teams with scalability and maintainability in mind. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Sean Falconer. Check the show notes for more information on Sean's work and where to find him. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Uh, I think the last time I saw you was back in May in Miami in the at the InfoBiff Shift Conference uh, USA. And then I guess, are you heading to InfoBiff Shift in Croatia next month? Yes, I am. Are you? Awesome. Yes, I will be there. So I guess we'll, we'll cross paths again. Uh, oh, fantastic. We could have done, could have waited and did this in person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great. Well, let's uh, let's introduce you to the audience. Let's start with some basics. Who are you? What do you do? And how do you get to where you are today? Sure. So I um, am a CEO and co-founder of Flight Control, previously creator of Blitz.js, um, been a software engineer my, my whole career. I uh, love love doing business stuff, creating businesses. Uh, Flight Control is the first like real significant business uh, that I've got into, uh, so that's fun. And outside of work, I like flying airplanes upside down and helicopters right side up. <laughs> yes, uh, you're the the only uh, founder and engineer that I know of that uh, owns their own plane. Although I'm sure that the um, um, uh, that also flies it. I'm sure like Mark Benioff owns a plane, but he probably doesn't fly it himself. Yeah. Were you, uh, was Flight Control a YC company? Is that right? Yes, it was. We went through Y Combinator uh, winter 22, which, or yes, winter 22, which was January to March of last year, beginning of 22. Okay, great. Fantastic. So we're talking, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, platform as a service and kind of how that, um, you know, w- what that means as a uh, people sort of deploying, um, you know, infrastructure to those various services and also how it compares to things like, you know, AWS and doing things sort of more DIY. So maybe a, a good place to start is what is, you know, platform as a service and how does it differ than just, you know, using something like AWS services directly? Sure. So, Platform as a service is a little bit of a wishy-washy definition, uh, but typically people think of it as Heroku, a railway render, these sort of uh, full abstractions over top of AWS. Um, and, you know, like that's that's kind of been the de facto standard for a lot of people, uh, companies starting uh, starting up, and because it's, it's really easy to deploy and stuff. Uh, but what happens is more often than not, it's actually technical debt, and you will have to eventually you'll eventually outgrow the platform, the service, either because of cost or limitations around control or scalability or maybe reliability. Uh, there's just so many things that can kind of go wrong there. Um, but it was kind of the the best of the the you know the best of two uh, the least of two evils because on the other hand, 
you have AWS, you know, which is is all like arguably, you know, the most powerful, the most scalable, the most secure, but it's so low level. And you have to assemble like five to 15 different low level components together just to like deploy a simple web app, right? Yeah. So that's, that's no good either. Um, and so, you know, me, my co-founder and I both uh, were like, just didn't like this sort of trade-off. And we were like, why can't you have the good developer experience of a platform, but on my own AWS account where you can, you know, get that raw power and scalability. Uh, and so that's, that's really what we created Flight Control to do. Mm-hmm. And do you think things like the movement around infrastructure as code has helped with, uh, you know, the management of AWS directly? Oh, absolutely. Infrastructure as code is is just almost critical, um, you know, because before infrastructure as code, what you would do is you would, you know, had click ops. You would go hunt and peck around the AWS console, change some settings or whatever. Um, but then, like, what happens if you need to recreate that environment in a different region or whatever? Like, how do you, you have no idea what settings you've changed and, and how to how to save them? And so, infrastructure as code gives you a, a concrete definition in your code base of what the infrastructure should be, and so it allows you to easily reproduce it. Um, and so, uh, but the problem is like things like Terraform and CDK are a very low level, also, and so you just have to know a lot of things. Um, and so what we've done is is created a higher level abstraction, uh, which we typically refer to as flightcontrol.json. And so it's designed for developers. So like our, our whole kind of philosophy here is making developer-first infrastructure. So giving the power of AWS to developers in an easy, flexible package. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you mentioned Heroku and, you know, I want to, you know, touch, uh, go a little bit deeper on that. So I can remember when Heroku kind of launched back in, it was like late 2000s. I think 2007 is like the founding of, of, of Heroku. And it was, it was a magical experience, like to be able to go and basically just like get pushed, deploy. Uh, you know, I think it was really one of the first cloud native development environments that existed. And in comparison to essentially going and like spinning up EC2 instances on AWS and, you know, managing your deployment through Jenkins or something like that. And, uh, um, and, and dealing with all those raw components on AWS, it, it was this like magical experience. And I think, you know, you mentioned that when you're using things like platforms as a service, like people, as those companies scale or as the infrastructure scales, they run into different challenges around just like, it's basically technical debt. And there's also a cost uh, issue with that. You know, from your perspective, what were some of the challenges with like Heroku? I mean, they ended up selling the Salesforce. I feel like, you know, they've grown that business, but it's not really in the zeitgeist of like the magical experience that it was 15 years ago. Like no one's really talking about, oh, like, did you see the latest thing that came out from Heroku right now versus like 15 years ago? Yeah, I think I think they've they've sort of failed to invest in keeping up to date. Like it doesn't support HTTP2 and just like some of these basic stuff, you know, um, so it's sort of degraded a lot on that respect and reliability. They've had security issues. Um, so it is definitely is kind of kind of sad. Um, it's definitely such an such an iconic service, um, you know. But that said, even as great as it was, uh, a lot of companies, like for example, Instacart, started there, but then they outgrow it, and in some cases, that can be a very expensive and time-consuming migration. To you know, depending on how invested they were there, um, and so we're trying to prevent that. We're trying to have a platform that 
is really easy for startups. It's just as easy as Heroku or whatever. You don't have to be an AWS expert, but then it will theoretically scale with you forever uh, because it's using your own dedicated infrastructure on AWS. You have the access and control if you need to customize or tweak stuff. And what about from like a security perspective? So, I mean, I think like the the advantage of like the sort of traditional platform as service, if they do security right, then it's kind of just like, you know, like it's out of sight, out of mind in some capacity. And then if you're doing AWS correctly, you can have a very secure environment, but you can also have a S3 bucket that's wide open to the public. I think they only recently made it not the default setting. Um, and then I, I guess like how do these things compare and then also compare to what you're doing at Flight Control? Yeah, so I, I think there's, um, you know, with with Heroku, they have a, a custom layer of infrastructure between you and AWS, um, and so there's, you know, there's more software there, there's more opportunity for for issues, uh, but generally, generally they're they're good at it. Um, on AWS, um, you know, the nice thing is that we automate all of that, so we give you the best in class setup that's already secure, uh, that has everything you need. Of course, you could go in and mess something up yourself, um, but we're trying to provide education around that and and just adding more and more features so that, like for example, um, to making it easy to give your the rest of your team access to your AWS account, um, you know, like that's something that we can add uh, to make it easier, but. Um, Generally, you, you kind of get a more secure setup by default because it's your own private private account. We deploy stuff to a VPC, a virtual private um, sort of network. And there's a lot of companies like um, that have compliance uh, concerns uh, for around like government and healthcare and whatever, and they they need that. Um, and so the you know if you use something like a database on AWS and your backend is deployed to Vercel then you're actually connecting to that database over the open network. And you're sort of relying on those database credentials to keep you secure. Um, but if you deploy everything within your, your AWS VPC, then that database can be private to the, to the public. And so that you can't even access it to try to like brute force your way into it. Um, and so that's a big benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I imagine for any regulated industry or a company that's like of a certain scale that you know has uh, you know, uh, 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 a lot of customer information that they need to protect, that's going to be an absolute like P0 priority for them uh, versus uh, just essentially relying on the database credentials to keep things secure. So in terms of um, uh, the like deployment models, so with things like Heroku, Vercel, like it's very simple to do. Basically, you can connect it to your Git account or, or you know, there's other means as well. But essentially, you push to a branch. It's just going to auto deploy it. Everything's kind of taken care of you from a CI/CD standpoint. You can roll those things back. AWS, is, you're probably going to have to use, build, and develop your own CI/CD pipeline using a you know a tool. How does that you know uh, compare to what you can do with uh, Flight Control? So we support both. Um, we will automate all the CIDs, CI/CD for you. Have you, you know, the Git push uh, deployments by default. We have preview environments for for branches. Um, so if you create a branch, uh, we have full stack preview environments. So not just the front end, but also your back end, your database, your Redis, your private workers. All of that can be spun up as a temporary environment. Um, and so, but for customers who want more power features. Uh, like if they want to control the build for some reason and 
they can point us to in their image registry. And so they would run the build, create the Docker image, upload it to the registry, and then just send us a deploy hook, deploy trigger, and we'll just deploy that latest image for them. And then maybe we can walk through like what what is sort of the the process to getting started with flight control. Like I, I you know I understand with some of these platforms as a service I've used like things like Vercel, Heroku, and so forth in the past. Like the the startup process is pretty simple. Like and that's really like the attractive part is like if I'm a you know one or two person company that's just starting, I don't even have to think about that stuff. I can go like focus on actually like trying to get customers or build something that's going to be useful. Uh, like what is sort of that you know ramp up period and, and what is the process to get started with flight control? It's exactly the same as you're used to with Heroku or Vercel. Connect your AWS or sorry, connect your GitHub account, define a few simple settings like your build command, start command. For the most part, it'll be automatically detected. Um, and then connect your AWS account and it's just off to the races. Um, you, it does take a little bit more time uh, to get the initial infrastructure created, like 20, 25 minutes, um, just because you're provisioning from scratch stuff in AWS uh, versus like a platform as a service. Traditional is shared infrastructure, and so they don't have to. Pr they can have like servers warmed up, ready to just, just to swap in, uh, for example. So the initial setup is just a little bit longer with flight control, but then that pays off over time because of the power and flexibility you get. And then. You know, what What are some of the challenges that this approach solves versus using the sort of, uh, you know, platform of a service? Like, I, I think it sounds like you're sort of matching the platform of a service from like a developer tools standpoint in terms of ease of use. But what are some of the challenges or limitations that, you know, traditional platforms of a service providers have that like flight control is essentially, uh, you know, addressing? The platforms of the service, you know, they typically are marking up AWS cost. Um, which we don't. Um, they they have more reliability issues typically because of this this extra software layer that they have between you and AWS. Um, typically, they have more limited regions, whereas AWS has like many many regions. I think almost thirty regions, and um, most of the platforms only give you a certain subset of that. Sometimes only like a one or two, um, and then. If you need to, you know, customize some of the the CDN settings, or like some sort of uh, the load balancer stuff, or the auto scaling rules, like you're limited to what they give you. Um, and so, in flight control case, like if we don't support it, if we haven't built it yet, you still have it. It's in your account. You can go in there and and customize something, um, even if we haven't like made it easy. It's still possible. What are some of the like initial customizations that infrastructure teams typically need to like address when, as they like if they were using something like you know Heroku, they're going to hit essentially some limitation in the platform at some point. What is sort of that first limitation that they're hitting that uh, you know they would want to be able to customize? I think uh, depending on their level of traffic, auto scaling is probably one of them. I know a lot of Heroku customers end up using a third party auto scaler connected to their account just because Heroku doesn't support what they need. Um, and so, you know, you like, that's something you have direct access with AWS. You can define based on CPU or memory or like requests per second, sort of whatever makes sense for your, um, your setup. I think that the other thing is, is often just cost, especially Heroku. Uh, the others are, are a little bit more reasonable. Uh, most of them, but Heroku is just kind of crazy on the cost. In terms of, the challenges that you know developers face when 
sort of DIY with AWS. So essentially they're like, I, I'm not going to rely on Heroku. I'm not going to rely on flight control. I'm going to do this myself. What are, what are some of the big like initial challenges that they, they come into? Is it mostly just the, 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 the sheer like complexity of like essentially combining these, you know, 15 different services together to do something fairly simple, like, you know, launch a, a, a web application? Yeah, pretty much. Like, so if you've never done it before, like you're in for a world of headache and it just takes a long time to figure it out and like get it working. And it's just tons of iteration. Like you're literally, will probably spend weeks um, if, if, or if not months, if you haven't done it before, if you have done it before, um, you know, then, then you're kind of inclined to like, Oh, I can save some money. I can just roll it from scratch myself. Um, but I don't have to worry about a third party service. Um, and typically that'll work for, for companies um, in, in their earliest stages. But as they bring, what we typically see is as they bring more and more engineers on, eventually, like, like the person who set that up is like doing something else, or they don't, they're too busy, they can't manage it. And now like, it kind of has to be more of a shared team or someone else has to to level up. Um, and so it just becomes a lot more maintenance burden overhead to maintain that and to set it up for new and more services. And so, um, and you know, that we find that companies who, started doing it themselves um, when they get to around the series B stage, when they're really starting to scale the team, that's when they're, they start, they're like, okay, this is not working anymore. Like we need better developer experience. We need um, developers to have easier access to spin up new services, easier access for them to debug and monitor what's going on. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, if you're using sort of platform as service, it's great for like you know, side projects, small projects, maybe even like building the initial like, you know, prototypes for, for a business. But essentially, once you hit that like series B phase, like you're mentioning, you're going to start to hit these challenges and you might have to do go through this like painful migration. But then on the other extreme, you're managing everything from scratch at AWS. You have to have it like uh, either an infrastructure team or people and you know, engineers that are very knowledgeable or they have to like learn those things. This is going to slow down your essentially like your build and go to market phase. And then flight control is bridging those worlds in some capacity. Is that, is that like a fair sort of like description of the, the landscape? Yep. Yep. For sure. Um, we find that often people will just be testing prototype stuff on, on a platform as a service. Uh, but when they're ready to go production to production, they're like, I want to use AWS because they, they know about the the power and the scalability and the, you know, the reliability of it. Um, but they, you know, they, they want something, they want that same experience. They want it to be easy. Yeah. And how does this work for like multiple regions? Like if I need to essentially be running infrastructure in, in Europe, uh, maybe for compliance reasons with GDPR, and I also have infrastructure, to, you know, running in the U.S., how do I manage those two regions uh, or like how does it, uh, flight control like ease the management of those two different regions? So multi-region is a very complex and tough subject, sub- tough uh, uh, subject. Um, so, you know, what we support today um, if you need to fully isolate your, your European infrastructure, then you would have two different environments. You would have uh, like a, a European environment and an environment for, for everyone else or the U.S. or whatever. Um, and so each of those could have their own database deployed there. Uh, they'd have their own specific URLs. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a relatively straightforward. But if you want to have a single database that is multi-region, and your app is running multiple regions with like all the same data, that becomes much more difficult. It's easy to deploy the infrastructure multiple places, but managing the data 
and keeping the data in all the places and up to sync is is, is much more challenging. Uh, hopefully, we can build stuff in the future that that makes it easier for the larger companies that need that. Yeah. So you you know we talked about like sort of the getting started process, like the deployment model sounds like it's is relatively similar to using like an existing platform as a service, except I'm just essentially it's going to spin up resources within my own AWS account. But what about as I need to do certain like you know customizations and configurations like what am I essentially interacting with uh, at the flight, flight control level in order to uh, make sure that I'm using I know RDS versus some sort of other like DynamoDB or you know basically how do I make these choices that are AWS specific and to uh, customize it and like how does that work with flight control? So we have uh, five main service types. And so you would come into Flight Control and you can add a server, a background worker, a RDS database, a Redis instance, or a static site. So those are the five things that we support, which covers the vast majority of cases. We'll be adding more over, over time, including serverless functions. Um, but so that's that's the kind of the level that you think of, of like, okay, I need a server, I need a database. And then... Um, inside of that, then we have, you know, the most common configuration that you're going to need. The instance size, how many instances, uh, how much do you want to, you know, your auto-scaling rules, um, your custom domain. And uh, sometimes we expose a bit more custom stuff, like you can add a Datadog sidecar to your server if you're doing, like, a lot of monitoring and observability stuff. Um, so we start very simple, uh, kind of give you good defaults. And then uh, slowly kind of expose more and more configuration to you as you need it. And then, of course, the ultimate is you go into AWS and you have unlimited access directly. Yeah. And then if I go into AWS and I need to do these, you know, customizations, how, like essentially, how do is that tied or back to what I'm doing at, at the flight control level? Like, how are those two worlds connected if I do those customizations? How do I make sure that essentially I can have that like reproducibility uh, for, for, you know, changes that happen down the road? Good question. So um, depending on what you change, it may not be reproducible, um, but it will stay. So uh, we don't overwrite every configuration on every deploy. We just surgically update whatever needs to be updated. Um, but the we are, we're looking at various ways to either basically ultimately expose every possible configuration through flight control or track the changes that you make in your account and then sort of have like a, a log of that that we can save um, so that you can reproduce. And then in terms of the actual engineering of flight control itself, like how, what, what are you, I'm assuming you're running on AWS since you're, uh, you know, essentially serving the AWS world, but yeah. like what, what, what was the engineering process for, for building this? Like what is it actually built in? Um, and uh, you know, what, what sort of details can you share around the actual, uh, you know, platform that you built? Sure. So it's uh, all full stack TypeScript. It's uh, Next.js front end, uh, Next.js and Blitz.js front end. Uh, we're actually rebuilding the entire dashboard right now um, using the new Next.js app directory and server components. Uh, that's sort of a whole other discussion. Um, but the most interesting part is the back end, which uses Temporal. Temporal.io, I believe it is. And it's a workflow orchestration engine that was created at Uber. Um, and it's super powerful. It's it's definitely helped us build a, a much more robust system uh, without it. It's basically an abstraction over queues and cron jobs. Um, and so it's it's kind of like 
you know, think you can think about the jQuery days of building UI where it's just you're imperatively kind of doing stuff all over. Uh, that's kind of like using cron jobs. Um, but Temporal is kind of like React where you kind of just define what you want um, and then it sort of handles the retries and, and reliability and stuff like that for you. Yeah, and then what what are you using Temporal for? Like what is that helping you, you use us? That, so that manages all the backend all the deployments. Um, it takes in, you know, the webhooks from GitHub and processes those, um, triggers deployments, manages environment, um, all of those sort of things, manages the builds. And then as a customer of Flight Control, am I running an instance of Flight Control within my own AWS or is it more of like a SaaS service essentially that's connected to my AWS account and then manages AWS on my behalf? It's a SaaS service that's just connected to your AWS. Um, so like the, the GitHub webhooks would come to our, our infrastructure, but then we issue commands to your account to run the build, to, to run the, the deployments. And so all your infrastructure and all your environment variables, secrets, et cetera, are in your account. And so none of, uh, none of your users' traffic touches our stuff. And then, you know, the company's been around now for what, like a, you said 2022 was the YC batch that you went through. So we really started building about two years ago. Okay. And then what was sort of the, uh, like the, um, you know, decision-making process? Like what, what led you to essentially doing, you know, full stack TypeScript? Like what, how did you make these different engineering choices and, uh, have you regretted or had to like backtrack on any initial choices that you made? Uh, so choosing the same language, full stack, uh, just has so many benefits, uh, making it easier to, to move between different parts of the stack, um, makes it easier to be a, a full stack engineer. Um, it's also what I what I really uh, had a lot of experience in. Um, a co-founder, Mina, is CTO, he, so he does, he manages, you know, the engineering side much more than I do. Um, he was, he didn't have less experience with it. Uh, but but still, like, is fully gung-ho on, on typed languages and the benefits that brings you. Um, I think Temporal has worked out really well. Um, React and TypeScript, I think that all, all has worked out really well. I'm trying to think if there's anything that we've sort of regretted. I think, if anything, maybe just some architectural stuff, you know, internally. Um, but I think even even most of that, we you know, got mostly right. And like you, it's impossible to get it perfect the first time. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're probably doing something wrong and you're probably moving too late if you're essentially, uh, you know, getting perfection from the beginning. You're <laughs> yeah. just not moving fast enough, especially as a, as a young startup, like, uh, you know, spend like four years just, you know, whiteboarding things and getting the perfect architecture. And even then it's probably not going to work. Um, and then I guess like when, um, in terms of like the uh, you know services that you're running on, uh, like is this deploy? Like, what is the like? Are you using like uh, you know uh, Kubernetes? Like, what what kind of like infrastructure do you have set up to actually run flight control? Are you, are you using flight control to run flight control? We are using flight control to run flight control. Um, so the you mentioned Kubernetes. Um, our server uh, service server service types are built on AWS Fargate. So it's, it's a similar thing to Kubernetes. It's a container orchestration engine, um, but it's it's a native AWS service. Um, the Kubernetes is great, but it has a minimum cost of like two to $300 per month, and it requires more sort of expertise and knowledge of it to use it. Um, and so we really like AWS Fargate because the starting price is $11 per month, 
Uh, so it's very, very affordable for companies to start with. And it's, it's relatively hands-off while still giving you a lot of the uh, controls that you get with Kubernetes. And then the, you know, you basically started this company during, uh, you know, like the, the, the era of the pandemic. Um, so I guess like what was some of the challenges that you ran into just like, you know, build, I'm assuming you're like a, a mostly remote team. I, I believe your co-founder is based in uh, Toronto. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So, so you're in the United States. He's in, he's in Toronto. Your team is all over the place. Is that right? Yep. So what were some of the, like, how did you kind of think through that process of like running a fully remote company? Like, have you been through that experience before or was this something new? I mean, it it was never even really a question about whether I would go remote or not. Like it was definitely remote uh, because that's what I wanted as an employee. Um, and I'd been working as a contract, as a contractor, you know, remote. And so like, that's what I wanted. I'm, and I'm building a company that I would actually want to work for. Like that's, you know, that's, that's ultimately my success for me is having a company that I love working at and that, that I would actually want to be an employee at too. So, um, we, my co-founder and I met online. We actually didn't meet in person until about six months after we incorporated officially. <laughs> it was just kind of funny. Um, you know, but it's, it's worked out really well. Um, you know, and so we do try to get the team together in person, like two to four times per year. Um, you know, ideally two like week long retreats and then, a couple other sort of informal, maybe at a conference or something like that. So we're actually going to Quebec City next week for for a week. So uh, that'll be awesome. The time before was Thailand, and the time before that was Italy. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's a, maybe I, I need to uh, jump on the flight control bandwagon. Uh, <laughs> this sounds pretty great. But the do you have to think about hiring differently when you're you know when you're essentially establishing a fully remote company or like the essentially the the I don't know, the traits of an individual that's successful in the environment different than the traits of an individual that maybe is more successful in a, in a place where they're going into like a place of business on a, on a daily basis. There may be some subtle things there, but I, it's, it's not something I think about when hiring someone. Like I, I can't think of, of anyone that I've been like, Oh, they would be good in office, but not remote or, or vice versa. Um, you know, I, I think the, the main things that we look for is just a really high standard of excellence um, in, in every part of their, their life. I think it, I think it's, it's evident, like excellent people are just kind of excellent at everything they do. They, they kind of operate at a high level. Um, and you know, even if it's not about the skills, you know, today, it's really about the, the level that you think about stuff, you know, your, your capacity, your, your curiosity, your hunger to learn, how fast do you learn? How, how are you, how, how are you thinking about the, the broader picture, how things to fit together, the, the effects that, you know, something may have down the road. And, but the, the big benefit of remote is that your, your pool of options is global or nearly global. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're not limited by the talent pool. That's like within, you know, I don't know, 50 miles of your office space, essentially. Yeah. I would, I, I really wish I could be in an, in the office with my team. Like, I think you would actually be more productive um, or actually like more effective maybe, but I, I, I couldn't have the team that I have in an office here in Dayton, Ohio, like they're not going to move here, you know? Um, and so all things considered, I, I think it's much better uh, being remote. Hopefully at some point we'll be large enough where we can have offices in major cities where people can come to 
you know, that live around there, um, if they want to, like an optional sort of hybrid thing. But I think it will be primarily remote for the long haul. And what's the team structure uh, today? Um, so um, I'm CEO, co-founder of CTO. Uh, we have uh, four engineers, uh, three full-time. Wait, let me think of this up. Um, two full-time and a contractor and an intern. So there's four reporting to Mina. And then we have one developer relations, uh, senior DevRel, that's reporting to me. Um, and so uh, most of the team is on engineering right now. And then I'm doing all the sales and marketing, the go-to-market stuff. Um, so that's that's been a, a been a learning curve for sure, coming, coming out of engineering and trying to learn sales and marketing and growth. Yeah, I, I've been there myself. That's basically how I, I, I learned sales and marketing by being a founder. Uh, because I had to, because there's nobody else to do it, basically, especially in the early days. And then what about, um, who was that like first hire when you came out of the YC batch? Was it essentially scaling the engineering team? So we actually, the, the very first hire we made um, was someone to help maintain Blitz.js. Uh, and this was before we even started YC. It was just after we got our initial funding from angel investors. And that's because I'd, I'd been spending most of my time on Blitz.js at that point. And so we needed someone else to kind of take that over and maintain that while, so I could focus on flight control. Um, so that worked out really well. And so Mina and I were just working together on flight control. Um, and then we hired, um, it was, it was right after YC that uh, we brought on my brother as a junior, uh, engineer to sort of help with, with the engineering stuff. Um, and then hired a couple more, or at least another one, uh, a few months after that. So it's, it's been slow uh, hiring. Like you, you want to make sure that you don't hire too fast um, because it, you know, more people doesn't necessarily make, make you move faster. So it adds a lot of overhead and also expenses cuts down your runway. Um, so trying to grow as slowly as we can, but also um, make sure that we don't, you know, like cripple ourselves not by not having enough help. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned Blitz.js, so that's a open source front end uh, JavaScript framework, right? That you you yeah. started. The idea was to create a Ruby on Rails style developer experience for JavaScript and React. It 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 sort of had a lot of the same sort of um, qualities, uh, but never never really reached that that dream state. Um, and so it, it kind of just stayed as is more like a toolkit to help you build full stack apps faster with Next.js. And it got over 12,000 stars, has thousands of people all around the world using it. Uh, downloads is like still growing slowly. Um, and so that was really fun. That's how I learned that I have a good knack for developer experience. That I really enjoy building developer tools, marketing to developers. Um, and that, that was kind of the, it really set me up to be successful here with flight control because of that. And it also was a, gave me a good network in initial awareness. Um, it's how we got a lot of our first flight control customers. Yeah. So how important, I guess, has that like uh, essentially contributing to like that open source project and establishing it been to your, your go to market? Uh, it sounds like it was uh, instrumental in landing some of those first customers. Is that sort of a, uh, you know, key part of your go to market today? It's not a key part of our go to market looking forward, but it, it's definitely been like, it's had, I don't think we'd be where we are today without it um, because it's just given um, so much awareness to us, to flight control is given a lot of credibility because a lot of people know about blitz and they, they like the idea, even if they've never used it. Um, and so we kind of got more mileage out of it than, than like 
just because the idea of it, people are like, oh, they, they like that. They, um, so yeah, we, we still get, you know, traffic coming in from flight control for that, but I think it'll be relatively smaller and smaller, um, as we expand in other areas. And you do a lot of, uh, I know you do a lot of public speaking, I guess like how critical has that been to like growing this business and what is sort of the, the, the motivation around that? And how do you, I guess, like tie that to like KPIs for the company? That's a good question. It's like, we're still kind of figuring out now what, what works, like what's worth, you know, investing money and time in for growing flight control. And I, it, it feels like, um, we haven't got a lot of value from either speaking at conferences or, or sponsoring them. We haven't done a booth yet, um, but we've done some of the smaller sort of sp- uh, sponsorships like badges or something. Um, you know, but it's it's hard to, if you're too focused on direct, um, like new customers from something, you can, it, it's tricky because with a product like this, it's not just every day you switch hosting providers or deployment tools. Yeah, you know, so you have to be top of mind when when an individual comes across that problem that they either need to deploy a new service or they need to improve the systems that they have. Um, and so, part of it is just awareness and just being top of mind and reminding them, even if I'm just showing up at a conference and wearing my T-shirt, like I can see like kind of recognition, like oh yeah, the flight control, and then and, you know, and, and so that you kind of that helps build your brand to like a public conversation more, uh, but it's really quite a long-term game. Yeah. I mean, I think from where you're sort of establishing like a new sort of uh, like type of, of uh, like, uh, like deployment system essentially, or like management of infrastructure system, then you have a big awareness challenge. And then there, and that plays into essentially the timing because not everybody's ready to switch infrastructure or like you're, you, you know, you mentioned someone might start out, on Heroku or Vercel or one of the other, you know, platform uh, providers. And then they hit series B and they're like, oh, well, we need to like replatform at this point or we need to uh, think about like making the switch. So it's like, are, are they aware that you are in, in uh, you know, available resource for at that time? Yep. So you gotta, you gotta have the awareness. Um, next is like familiarity that they actually understand what you do and like your strengths and, and being able to, to picture like, how they would be able to use your product and how it would benefit them. And, and lastly, I think it's trust. Like, do they, do they trust that you're re- reliable, that you're going to be around? Um, and so all those things are, are things that we're working on. And then when you talk to, you know, engineers about what you're doing, is this something that they immediately see the value of, or is there essentially like a, a you know, like sort of pre-existing like challenges that you see over and over again that you have to overcome? I think people see the value, the idea quite quickly. They're like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I think the next stage of like kind of moving them from thinking about using something like Vercel or Render Railway as a default, um, that's a little bit more challenging because AWS is a, is a little bit more of a, like, oh, it has a stigma, you know, <laughs> um, and like, oh, like maybe worrying about like, are my costs going to balloon or something? Um, and so there's a little bit of like mental barriers there that, that we kind of have to like work on with messaging um, and stuff. But um, for the most part, people who are, are doing something serious, like running a real business or whatever, they understand the value of AWS. Um, and so that becomes easier. It's, it's more like the, the, the hobbyist inside projects, you know, where it's like, 
we, it's it's hard to get them, but we don't we don't actually care about them that much because yeah. they're not going to be paying us much money. Like we're we're free for individuals, so we 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 like them. It's it's a good way to get awareness, um, and we want to make it a good experience for them. But ultimately, they don't fuel the business. And what's sort of the switching costs for somebody who is uh, you know migrating either from an existing platform or maybe they were managing AWS themselves today, but they want to have essentially like lower their sort of internal like resource costs to do that? It's usually pretty simple. Like as far as changing the, the application, it's just deploy it and switch to DNS records. Like that's really all there is to it. Um, migrating a database is definitely more involved. Um, and we we uh, have some guides and are working on guides on that, especially like for people migrating from Heroku, for example. Um, but it's also something that we help customers with. So we we like provide a lot of hands-on support for people who who want to help migrating or if they run into any weird AWS thing as they're using Flight Control, we're, we're there to help them. Um, but even migrating a database is, is not that difficult. You basically put your, your app into a maintenance mode or like kind of freeze freeze it somehow um, and then dump the database, upload it to the to the new database and connect your, your application, switch it to connect to the new database and, and then you're up and running. Um, so it usually doesn't take that long and you can do it during a, during an off-peak time. Um, and it, what, what do you, would you say is like one of the biggest like engineering challenges that you've faced uh, over the last you know couple of years as you're building this platform? This would be a better question for Mina since he's in, <laughs> in that day-to-day much more than I am. Um, I mean, AWS itself is just crazy. The figuring out the APIs and like each one is like a little bit different, has its own quirks. Um, you know, so that... They're that even a little some, different across regions as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that took some time for Mina to like really kind of ramp up with. But now I think he's pretty much... He like thinks like AWS and he can he can figure it out. But like what he, he says, it's like some of these services that, and the APIs, it, it feels like they got a team together in a room and they're like, how can we make this the most complicated, the most confusing API possible? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, probably just uh, the maybe the speed to go to market to get something out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, in terms of like, you know, you mentioned this hurdle around just like kind of like getting a handle on the APIs and all the variability. And, and, as, and as I mentioned, they can even vary in terms of what services are available diff- across different regions. And sometimes they work a little bit different depending on the region. Um, what about just like, how do you sort of stay on top of the sheer number of services that are coming out from AWS at any given time? And like, how do you prioritize your support for those different services? Well, frankly, half the stuff or more that they release is just junk. So you don't have to worry about it. I mean, they have like five different NoSQL databases available. Like, <laughs> like how does anybody possibly navigate that? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, they, so much of the, the old basic stuff, S3, EC2, load balancers, ECS, um, all of these are like really, really good or reliable. They don't change. And so... You know, it's, it can be challenging to figure it out and figure out the APIs. But the nice thing is that once you've got it figured out, it's extremely stable and reliable. They hardly ever change stuff or, or deprecate stuff. Um, you know, we're we're still just building out support for all the the basic, the the most commonly used, let alone like the, the new shiny stuff. Um, and frank, frankly, most people just don't need all that stuff. You know, there's going to be the, the some that are more sophisticated that will, will do it, but... Over time, we'll, we'll hopefully support more and more. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we get a little bit sort of in love with the idea of these like complicated infrastructures. The same thing in in data engineering. You see like this modern data stack that has like 25 different services, but most people starting out their sort of data pipeline, they need like a spreadsheet or maybe like, or maybe they need like Redshift or like, you know, like they they need simple warehousing, simple reporting, and they don't need, uh, you know, 30 components to do that. Uh, uh, It's just like over end, it becomes like an over engineering uh, uh, problem for, for different companies. Yeah. Unfortunately, engineers like to engineer and sometimes at the the detriment of the business. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So what's next for flight control? Is there anything exciting that you can share in terms of uh, on the development front? Yeah, so we're getting ready to roll out an entirely new marketing website. Uh, that's It has a whole new sort of branding, look and feel um, to accompany a new logo that we rolled out uh, later, earlier this year. And we have an entirely new dashboard uh, that's, that's built from the ground up uh, with using Next.js and server components, all new design, all new UI, UX. Um, you know, we, we've been in, working with Overnice, a design agency out of Berlin. They did the... Uh, branding and Prisma, uh, design for Prisma in the early days. Um, and they've been absolutely incredible, put together a really awesome uh, brand. And so this new dashboard is going to, it's just going to function so much better. It has a ton of new features like live AWS cost in the, in the UI. So you can see exactly how much each service is costing you. Um, we have CPU and memory charts, uh, runtime logs. Um, and so there's a bunch of, a bunch of new functionality in there. And this should be rolling out within a, a month. Hopefully, we'll have it early, uh, ready for early access for our current users this by the end of the August. Um, but that's that's really exciting. Um, and then after that, we're going to be working on a blazing fast build service that uh, should get a lot of builds under one minute. And the, the dashboard that you mentioned that's uh, essentially an easier way to monitor not only cost but essentially what's going on on AWS. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's kind of the primary interface to flight control is the dashboard for creating projects and environment services, managing them, monitoring them. Um, of course, we have the, the config as code um, and the GitHub integrations and all, and all of that, but the da- dashboard is, is uh, kind of your, your home. Awesome. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for being here. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person next month. Yeah, it'll be fun. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.